0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Michael Sidney Fosberg has performed his autobiographical one-man play called Incognito around the country for 15 plus years in theaters, middle and high schools, colleges, for corporations, government agencies, and community organizations. And he's followed the performances with frank discussions with audience members about race and identity. And now he's written a book that grows out of those discussions called Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. It's published by Incognito Books and brings Mr. Fosberg to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you, lauren Good to be with you.
0: And didn't you also write a companion memoir to this one-man show called Incognito, An American it Odyssey did. of Race and Self-Discovery?
1: Yes, yes, published in 2011.
0: Now, what story did
1: you tell in that play in the memoir? Well, I was, uh... I was Essentially, I was uh, raised in a working-class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago by my biological mother, who was of Armenian descent, and an adopted stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And when I was in my early 30s, um, they sort of unceremoniously announced they were getting a divorce, and I realized at the time that I, I didn't know anything about my biological father. I'd never asked any questions. My mother had never given me any answers. So I decided to go out and search for him, and uh, only knowing his name and the last place that he had lived some 30 years prior was in the Detroit area. So armed with that information, this was the age before the Internet. We used the Internet for everything. I went to the library. I was living in Santa Monica, California, and I went to the library, and I don't – you know, here's something your listeners are going to fall back on. I I went to the phone book section. Mm -hmm. Remember phone books? (laughs) I remember them well. Yes. Libraries used to house. Um, collections of phone books from major cities around the country. I looked for the Detroit phone book. I found the Detroit phone book, and I looked up his name, which was John Sidney Woods. And there were about four or five listings for John Woods, and I copied them all down. I raced back to my little tiny apartment, and I, you know, gathered the courage to finally pick up the phone and dial the first number on the list. And it turned out to be my father in the first phone call. And And during... During that phone call, he proceeded to tell me, as he said, a couple of things I'm sure your mother's never told you, Um, one of which is that he had always loved me and thought about me a lot, which just absolutely moved me beyond belief, hearing hearing my father tell me that he loved me for the first time. And then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I I thought, okay, aside from not telling me about you, what else could there be? And he said, I'm African-American.
0: And you had no idea until that moment that you might be biracial.
1: That is correct. Yes. Didn't, I mean, didn't I, you
0: wonder why your mother hadn't told you something as important as that?
1: Yes, um, but I, I'll, you know, I, I have to say, um, I was a very scared kid, and um, my mother, you know, I never asked questions. Um, my mother was, um, I wouldn't say secretive, but not always uh, forthcoming with <laughs> lots of information. She remarried um, when I was about two, just before I was two years old. So I had a father who raised me, Um, although we didn't necessarily gel on many levels. um, He was my dad. He raised me, and then they had two more kids, and so now I had a family. And so growing up with all of that, I kind of grew into that family and whatnot, and so um, I, I didn't ask a lot of questions. Now, uh, did you look different from your siblings? Yes. Yes. I, I had wild and very curly hair. I, I, I had an afro in high school and beginning college, which I couldn't explain. And I'd ask her some questions about it all the time. kind of a big question. And then I remember one day she sort of said to me, well, I, your, your grandfather had hair like that, I think. And she was speaking of her father. And I would say, well, he's bald, so I don't know what you're talking about
0: yeah, you, but, you t- uh, tell the story in the book about uh, doing a, a, a performance and uh, or the the person who had arranged it had similar hair and he called it a Jufro.
1: That's right. That's right. A Jufro. Right. You refer to be referred to, as, to as such. Right. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was doing a show. Well, you know, this, I guess this really plays on the whole idea of, you know, how much we have in common and how, you know, people think of it as whether it's a Jufro or an Afro or whatever. We, we, we have these things that we have in common.
0: Well, as a result of that conversation, uh, you went from life as a white man to someone who is biracial, but you were still you. Uh, looking right. back on at your life until then, did you see any examples of unconscious bias, racial stereotyping, and white privilege that
1: you might have engaged in? You know, I have to say my mother, um, well, I'll tell you that I, I I don't even know if I, I think I talk about this in the, in the first book, my biological father was not the first black man that my mother had dated. My mother had dated other black men prior to this, um, against her parents wishes. And and even so much so that my father, uh, my grandfather, that is her father. Um, when he found out, he, he was very angry with her and treated her very roughly. Um, But what I'm getting at here is that my mother brought us up to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not to be colorblind, to see and recognize what is in front of you, but judge the person by their character, not the color of their skin. And so we were brought up with that. And um, that's kind of how, you know, how we were raised. And you were growing up in Chicago. So
0: did you have... Uh, Any black friends? Chicago has a sizable African-American community.
1: Yes, I actually grew up in a little town north of Chicago, about 40 miles north, a town called Waukegan, and it was Mm -hmm. very, very mixed. You can look through my, it's so interesting to look back through my yearbook, and it was a a rainbow of of kids um, that I grew up with. I was one of well, I thought I was one of only two white guys on my high school basketball team. But, of course, I didn't know back then that I, I wasn't purely white. So um, I had a funny thing happen a, a few years back. I went to my 40th uh, high school reunion, and I saw the guys from the basketball team. And I, I I greeted them, and they were all you know happy to see me and stuff. And we talked, and I said, you guys are never going to believe what's happened to me. And I told them the story. And they were all like, oh, we knew that about you. We always knew you had it in you. And and this is, you know, I got this kind of comment quite often. Did you remain in contact with your father? Uh, My biological father? Yes. Yes, yes. We remained in contact. Um, He actually um, passed away about, I guess it's been about three years now, Uh, in the last. Few years of his life, it was very difficult to um, have communication with him. He suffered from um, extreme dementia, and um, but we stayed in touch. My grand—I met my grandparents. His parents were were alive um, when I found all of them, and I got a good chance to spend about ten years with my grandparents before they passed away. And and he um, was very I proud
0: had- of his uh, parents, his parents and grandparents, because they had uh, been uh, serious activists.
1: Absolutely. So my, I have sitting in front of me right now a document dated 1864 from the uh, commanding officer of the 54th Regiment of the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great-great-grandfather, Charlton Woods, was a member of that, that unit. And I have, I actually, they saved that document. I have uh, a Negro Leagues um, baseball contract from my great-grandfather. Um, Charles Lefty Robinson sitting on my on my wall right in front of me. I mean, they kept all kinds of things and they were very, very active in the in the community, in the African-American community. My grandparents were um, very active in their church and active in um, um, taking part in things. And they lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My grandfather was on the school board there. So, yeah, they they had a, a great presence in their community.
0: Were you already working as an actor uh, at the this point when you met? You found out who your father was. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I, I was uh, trained. Uh, went to school, college, graduated with a bachelor of fine arts from the University of Minnesota, and I'd been involved with in theater up there. I started a, a children's theater company in Minnesota, and then I moved down to Chicago and um, became involved with the famous Steppenwolf Theater. I had gone to high school at the same time. Several of their uh, founding members had uh, gone to a nearby high school. We competed against each other in debate and theatrical events and whatnot. And and then when I put the play up in Chicago and then I took it to a theater in Missouri, uh, Kansas City, and what happened was I did a show for a group of high school students. And afterwards... You know, they'll bus in students for during the day so they can have a, a educational um, theater theatrical experience. And after the show, usually the artists come out and, you know, talk to the, the students and they ask questions. You know, well, you know, how long did it take you to write this? And how do you do all those characters and things like that? But instead, that day, the students ask me questions like, well, what box do you check up on, on, on applications? And and why is race so important? And how do we go about talking about it? And what does it mean to be biracial? And all these questions that dealt with identity and how we see ourselves and how we look at other people. And I realized that the play had this really deep resonance, um, for young people. And so I started to then tour to high schools with the show. And then somehow I got connected with an agency that booked people in colleges. And I was on sort of the, well, what's considered the lecture speaker circuit, although that's not exactly what I do, but, um, so I started visiting colleges and, Performing this show and conducting these dialogues after the after the play, and then one night I found myself at a, a business college outside of Philadelphia. And after I'd done the show, and we had this amazing, engaging dialogue, um, a couple of corporate people from very large corporations outside the the city there came up to me and said, "You know, would you consider coming doing this for our our employees?" And I thought, "Wow, yeah, absolutely." And that's when I started to become aware of the diversity, equity, and inclusion field, um, as it is known in the um, corporate and educational world. And uh, that's when I started to sort of target more, um, utilizing it as a tool to have really engaging and meaningful conversations in those spheres.
0: So it was understood when you performed it that there was going to be a discussion period
1: afterward. That's correct. There's always been a discussion. Well, not, not when I first did it in the theaters, it didn't start out that way. But as I gradually discovered, again, from that performance for high school students, how important it was and how it brought up these meaningful questions and difficult and uncomfortable questions, then I started to make sure that that was understood, that we were going to have a conversation following the show.
0: Now, lots, a lot has happened since you decided to write this play and share your story um yes. have you adjusted it <laughs> as uh, major events have occurred that might affect uh the way you
1: tell the story You know I, not so much um adjusted the story I mean certainly the the story as a play version started out as a 2 hour with an intermission and then we just I just whittled it down into it's about 48 minutes now without an intermission But the dialogues after the shows have changed considerably over the years. You have to remember, I started doing this, I guess I started doing the play in 2001. So I have performed it prior to the election of our first, well, do we want to call him a biracial president or a black president? Um,
0: Well, he's biracial. Yes. Right,
2: exactly. Although
1: it's interesting that
0: uh, for bigots, he was 100% African-American. Right. And born in
1: Africa. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, he he himself does identify as a black man. Um, And that, you know, we could talk about that for a long time. I mean, that has a lot to do with the way that people perceive you. As you mentioned, people a certain segment of society just saw him as black or as African or African-American. But again, I've been performing it through. Through his presidency and now into the current presidency, and um, and actually have been experiencing um, what many are hearing about in the news that our federal government is now limiting um, or cutting back on racial sensitivity trainings uh, at any federal agencies.
0: In fact, they uh, they have eliminated the 1619 project. Uh, now, right you. You've included uh, the script for the play in this new book. Uh, yes. You've called it
1: incognito. Why? Well, incognito seems like such an appropriate word. Um, not knowing your full identity or or, or or having an identity that is unknown um, just seemed like the perfect word for the play. Um, I, I When I first started doing the play, I had a I had an African-American director and during re- we had a great time rehearsing because he just, he absolutely loved the show and, and really helped me shape it in, in the very beginning stages. And we would joke and he would say, you know, you really should call this instead of mm. incognito. And I said, well, I think we'd be giving away too much information in the title. Then, don't you? yes, <laughs> and yes. He said, Yeah. You're probably right. So.
0: No, I think that you made the right choice. Um, mm. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. And we are streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Michael Sidney Fosberg, F-O-S-B-E-R-G. His book, I can say his latest book, right? Um, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. Now, you mentioned uh, some of the things that the... uh, the school kids brought up in in uh, the conversations how I'm assuming that the discussions were quite different depending on whether you were was in a school or talking to, to people in a corporate situation a government agency a community organization uh, how different were they or did certain things yeah. just come up
1: again and again no matter who
3: yeah yes
1: Certain things do definitely come up. I mean, certainly the, the 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 question of you know which box do you check off on applications is is a is probably a, a pretty standard question that people ask. I sort of address it at the end of the play. I jokingly refer to myself as triple A, <laughs> African American Armenian. <laughs> Um, but that's a pretty standard question that comes a- a- across the board. I-, I will say, you know, there's definitely a difference between, for instance, I've done shows for middle school kids. I, I don't generally do too many of those anymore, but um, middle school kids have like n- little inhibitions. I mean, they will just, I, you know, when it comes time for the questions, the room, the hands go up immediately. Um, and kids ask all kinds of crazy questions. Um, the high school kids are a little more intimidated. you know, they don't want to be the first person to ask the first question or they're a little shy or whatever. um, college kids somewhat that way. but um corporations aren't so much that way either. Um, they they're not, I wouldn't say, as eager as um, middle school kids, but they're definitely willing to engage in it, um, probably because there's already a culture or climate in corporations. To try and um, have these conversations. I mean, there's a lot of people doing diversity and inclusion work in, in corporations, um, whether it's uh, a diversity inclusion officer who is, um, you know, a part of the corporation or they bring in someone like myself or another person who is a facilitator or a trainer. And so they're definitely trying to provoke and to um, instill more of an atmosphere of uh, inclusion within their environment. And so I'm a part of that. And, and because they've been doing, they have a history of it. Uh, I think the questions come a little easier um, for adults, and and certainly adults also understand the time frame a little more than students do. So I was born in 1957, and I talk about um, uh, growing up in Boston. And you know, high school students, middle school students, they don't they don't have a historical. Um, understanding of what was going on in Boston in the late 50s, early 60s, but adults. The big do. busing crisis, for example. Exactly, exactly. And, and to some degree, I mean, you know, Boston was a very racially segregated city. And, and to some degree, it still does have um, a lot of that going on. And, and, and again, the adults um, sort of recognize that or understand that. When I talk about um, growing up in Roxbury, um, there's lots of people that resonates with um, I talk about going to the Inkwell, which is a beach on Martha's Vineyard, which was a black beach. Um, more adults are familiar with that than, say, students are. So.
0: And uh, so I- I'm gathering that depending on where you were and who you were talking to, you got very different kinds of, of uh, things brought up in the discussions. But were there certain things that just seem to be there no matter what, other than what box do you check?
3: Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you asked about that because there are there is something that I've actually in the last probably five or six or seven years that I have been injecting because I've noticed that it's been on people's minds and they're not quite sure how to ask about it. And this thus the title of the book, nobody wants to talk about it. Um so I play both black and white characters in my show mm-hmm. and I play my grandmother, my grandfather, friends, re- other relatives, my brothers, my sister, my mother, all these different people. And sometimes, um, and I also incorporate some stereotypical imagery and moments um, mm-hmm. uh, related to black culture. Now, quite you
2: often. You also deal with
0: passing covering white privilege and code switching.
1: So we can talk about all of those things. That's right. That's right. All of those things are ingrained in the play. And so oftentimes um, people will sort of try to diagnose what they're seeing in relationship to the stereo, what they view as stereotypes. So my grandmother to some people sometimes seems like a, a, a black stereotype, an old, large, African-American, Southern woman. But in reality, I am playing her as authentically as I can remember her, not um, trying to incorporate stereotypes, but trying to remain true to the image and the person that I remember her to be. Now, they are seeing what looks like a white guy portray black characters, which we rarely see. Unless, of course, they're referring to Tropic Thunder, which is a whole another, whole another issue there. But um, so that causes them to judge the characters in a different way, based on their own personal or non-personal experience with people like that. So um, people like John Leguizamo, who's also a solo performer, or even Tyler Perry, talk about this phenomenon when people judge their work as what they see as stereotypical, but both Leguizamo and um, Tyler Perry talk about, hey, I'm just playing family members. You may see them as stereotypes, but that's not how I'm intent. That's not my intention. My intention is to be authentic to the character. And so what I do sometimes is after I perform, I will ask the audience a question before I take questions. And I'll ask how many people felt that the black characters in the play were stereotypes. And quite often, a majority of the audience will raise their hand. And then I'll ask How many people felt the white characters in the play were stereotypes and very few people raised their hand? And I say, well, isn't that interesting? Why is it that we see people of color more stereotypically than we see light skinned people?
0: And then I have a
1: discussion about what are stereotypes.
0: Did it matter whether the audience was majority white or majority African-American? How mixed the audience
1: was? It, it doesn't actually. Sometimes the, the black people in the audience will see them as stereotypes, but there might be a slight difference in terms of that may not be a negative thing for them. In other words, they recognize, and, and this I think is true of Tyler Perry's work, they recognize the stereotypical aspect of those characters, but they don't see it as a negative. They see it as this is our, these are our people, These are uh, some of our people act like this. Um, what I'm trying to get about is again, is this idea what are stereotypes? We all have stereotypes Mm. that apply to us, you know, whether we're men, women, young, old, black, white, you know, whatever. And but not all of the stereotypes from those categories apply to us, and yet that's the system which
0: we use to judge people. And we also make assumptions about people, for example. Uh, most people assumed that Prince was biracial. It turns out that both of his parents were biracial, but he, you know, he didn't have a white
1: parent. Right. We make a lot of assumptions based on... Um, that was his skin little, color. Right. A uh, little knowledge that we have, we base those assumptions on on people. And, and again, that's what I'm trying to point out. And I think that thing for me came up a lot in the last, as I mentioned, the last five or six years when I started to notice that high school students were, were offended at the end of the play, like, Oh man, those are terrible stereotypes. Why is he doing that? And then, you know, I'd ask this question and that would open up the door. I also, as I mentioned, use stereotypical imagery. There's a moment in the play where after I have the phone conversation with my father and he tells me that he's black, meaning I'm half black, I hang up the phone and this James Brown song comes on and I pull out an African statue and I pound the statue on the, on the table. And I, I get I I act sort of like royally African and and I tell people, look, that's not exactly how it happened. In other words, I didn't hang up the phone with my father and pull an African statue out of my closet. That is a theatrical device. And I'm using it to force you, the audience member, to think about what does it mean to be blackness? What 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 does that mean? what kind of imagery, what kinds of things do we stereotypically use to define blackness, whether it's James Brown music or an African statue, or I talk about college applications. So all of these things are, are I'm trying to use as a theatrical device to force the audience to think about this.
0: You encourage your readers to tell their stories, to be comfortable with discomfort, to recognize that there isn't one way to have conversations about race and identity. And maybe a little later in the show, we can invite some of our listeners to join in this discussion, if that's all right with you.
1: Absolutely. I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Maybe a little later. You say that you encountered so many awkward and uncomfortable situations, I'm quoting you, that it led you to develop a set of tools that could help mitigate those encounters. Uh, and you offer your readers seven tools for how to go about creating space for these difficult, for these difficult conversations. Um, yes. Can you give me a, an example
1: of one or two? Yes. Yes, yes. yes, absolutely. So the first tool may seem like the most obvious tool and you mentioned it just a moment ago, is and that is tell your story. Mm. Tell your story, open up, listen, by, by sharing our personal stories, we discover our commonalities. Look, it's, This is what's known in academic circles as intergroup contact theory. Intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us because we discover that we have a lot more in common than we have different. That's a fact. We have more in common than we have different.
3: But But despite
0: those commonalities, you admit that we have to face the reality that the color of one's skin often determines the course of one's life.
3: That's
1: absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by, again, I think telling our stories, not judging the differences would be the second tool. So let's, let's take, I, I don't have dark skin. I have been passing most of my life, but didn't know I was passing. And we can talk about that as well. But Um, But if we're looking at someone and we're basing our judgment on the color of their skin, we're starting in the wrong place because we have more in common with that person than our skin tone. And we're not bothering to find out what those commonalities are. Um, A a listener writes to me that,
0: uh, to correct me, says that both the Prince's parents identified as African-American, which just uh, complicates the situation. Right. Right. Right now, now, haven't we seen uh, the, the the differences uh, exposed quite clearly because of recent events—the impact of COVID nineteen on minority communities and the yes. response to police killings of of George Floyd, Breonna Kill- Taylor, and and uh, way too many others.
1: Well, absolutely, and I I would I would uh, I would suggest that. A lot of this has to do with the fact that we're not having the conversation. We're not talking with people about, um, about their realities. Look, the, here's another tool. We have to understand that there are realities, again, realities outside of our own experience. Just because we may not have experienced racism, sexism, homophobia, age discrimination, disability indifference, or some other form of discriminatory treatment doesn't mean that those are not realities for other people. And we need to talk about that. We need to listen with empathy.
0: Unless you're uh, a candidate for the Supreme Court and then you don't want to talk about any of those things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if I want to, I, I mean, I, you could probably figure out my my political leanings, but but I try, you know, I, it's funny, I try to stay out of politics when I'm, when I'm having conversations. And, and sometimes there will be people in the room most of the time I'm I'm preaching to the choir, but oftentimes there'll be people in the room who will, you know, claim that diversity and inclusion work, as our current administration has done, is divisive and is wrongheaded and um, and and well as they're going to do is stopping people from talking about but I contend it's a human issue. It's not a political issue. It's a human issue. You're listening to Leonard Lopez
0: at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, take two eyes to make a pair. (laughs) Brother, we can't quit until we get our
2: share. Say it
0: loud. Before I get back to my conversation with Michael Sidney Fosberg, I'd like to take a a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to come through for us right now by going to our website, give2wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic again that number is 516-620-3602 you can go online to give to wbai.org and one great way to support wbai throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of you your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard It Go Paid At Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show. Nobody wants to talk about race, identity, and talk about it, race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations by my guest, Uh, author and and actor and playwright, Michael Sidney Fosberg, but no matter what level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602, or by going online to give to wbai.org and please help keep this independent 100 percent listener funded free speech radio station alive in the new york metropolitan area but also don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of leonard Lopate at large and from all of us uh, to all of you thanks for helping keep us keeping on the air and uh, i'm returning now to my guest Michael Sidney Fosberg, his book, as I said, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, uh, published by, um, I guess you're you're publishing it yourself? That's correct, yes. I invited listeners to join the conversation. Uh, Let me give out that phone number if they want to talk to you. Our number is 212. 209-2877 Two zero nine two eight seven seven. that's 212-209-2877. Um, you write, we all, I'm quoting, we all have different experiences with race and identity and therefore being Bring different points of view to the table. This is actually the strength of our collective spirit, our diversity, and that allows each participant to talk a little bit about their own personal experiences. But doesn't that diversity include a wide range of biases, some of them rather hateful?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, this is uh, part of our part of our challenge. Uh, we talk about unconscious biases and, you know, the word unconscious means we're, we're unaware of those biases. I, I had a kind of an awakening, not on a deeply serious level, but certainly a, a level of um, seeing one of my biases. Um, I had uh, been asked to do some work for Harvard College uh, in, in Boston and Cambridge and, um, the uh, person who introduced me for the session I was about to conduct was a very prestigious, very well-decorated um, individual at the university there, and um, they gave an introduction and then read a bio that um, my office had provided for them, and um, and then I, I did a sort of a training session we talked about unconscious biases we talked about cultural competencies and it was really engaging and it was back and forth with the um, a- attendees i think there were about 160 people there and afterwards so many people came up to me and said oh man i wish you would come back and do more of this work we need this here this is really great and they did a survey and the survey came back Extremely positive. I'd say I don't know, 89 percent. You know, like 90 percent of the people were very, very uh, keen on the uh, on the discussion and on the workshop. But there were a small percentage, about five percent or so, that didn't find it worth worthy or didn't find it a value. And one of the comments um, from one of those people was, um, "Michael has no business." Doing this kind of work, he's an actor and he should stick to the stage. But he has no business doing workshops on race, identity, and diversity. Um, and I, I have to say, I mean, like anybody, you know, when you get when you get a critique, I mean, it it stings, right? You, you're, it, it, nobody wants to be criticized in that way. And it was really um, <laughs> quite hard.
0: to well, you- read. You were being stereotyped not in terms of race, but in terms of profession. Exactly. Who was an actor to tell us how to live our lives?
1: Exactly, exactly. And I realized, you know, we had provided them with a bio, as I mentioned, and the bio had a lot of my previous theatrical stuff in it. It didn't talk a lot about the books that I, that I wrote and about the work that I do with other um, diversity facilitation teams and whatnot. And then I started to think about a bias that I had that I, I hadn't even contemplated. So I, I was trained as an actor, as I said, and I've been in the theater world for many, many years until I sort of ventured off into the D&I space here. Um, but I, 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 and I still do. Well, we don't do right at the moment, but I've been to – Leonard. I, literally, I've been to thousands of shows. Thousands of plays over the years in New York and Chicago all over the world. I've gone to theater It's it's been a big part of my life And what is the first thing I do when I go to the theater? I sit down in the seat I've got my program in front of me and I read the program and I look at the bios of the actors And I start judging them before (laughs) they've even stepped on stage
2: you know, Same oh, this you.
1: one went to this one went to New York University. Oh, Lati Dao, or or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. You know, and I'm judging them before they've even stepped on the stage. And I realized how insidious that was. And so from that day, I stopped reading the program before it plays.
0: We have a a number of calls coming in. Should we yeah. start uh, talking to our listeners again? The number two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. BAI, you're on the air. Hello, you're there. Okay.
3: Okay, we'll try the next one.
0: Let's try the next one. Hi, BAI sometimes uh, listeners get a bit confused because there's a bit of a delay on the radio, so yeah. uh, they're, they're waiting to hear it on the radio. You should try to uh, do this on your phone. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. Boy, I, I'm starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> <laughs> BAI, you're on the air one more time. Okay, that's two. Should we try a third one, Reggie?
3: Third one. Third is the charm.
0: <laughs> WBAI, you're on the air. Maybe there's something wrong with the uh, the equipment. Hello? Okay. Well, while okay. we're trying to figure, we'll out, yeah,
2: are you
3: there? Go ahead. No, no, that was me.
0: <laughs> oh, Reg, do we know what's going on here? I have no idea.
3: <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll make it happen.
0: Okay. Okay. Meanwhile, I'll ask about some other things. Uh, I, uh, I should point out that my guest is Michael Sidney Fosberg, and we're talking about his uh, latest book. I can say that. Nobody wants to talk about it, race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations. But is, isn't there stereotyping on both sides of this equation? When I was a teenager, I lived in a largely African-American neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I often felt that I was resented by some of my, the, the neighborhood kids simply because I was white. Uh, I, didn't, I sure didn't do anything to express any, um, any biases, but that didn't mean that I didn't run into all sorts of problems.
1: Well, sure. I mean, this, this has to do with us having white privilege. I say us because I have white privilege as well. I mean, I, everywhere I go, I mean, people see me as a white, as a white man. I mean, it's not like, uh, it, and it's also sort of a, and this, this touches on passing. I mean, it's not like I'm going to go around and announce my race sure. because people wouldn't norm, you know, can't really see what I am per se, but it's also not like I'm trying to pass. Um, for white. So it's a it's a difficult position to navigate. Obviously, I do what I do for a living and I do this, you know, 24 seven. So I'm constantly having these conversations about race and identity. But for, you know, going to the grocery store or going to wherever people see, oh, there's a white guy. Um, mm. And I definitely um, a benefit a benefit of the privilege of having light skin. I don't have people staring at me when I'm shopping. I've been, I've been to department stores with black friends and I've watched, you know, sales clerks sure. pay attention to my black friend while we're in there shopping and not pay any attention to me. Well, what's that? I mean, well, white
0: I mean keeping an eye on them.
1: Right, right, hmm. exactly.
0: Well, you report that four days after a presentation at a corporate office, you received an email claiming that your comments yeah. after the performance hit that writer as quote, racist and race baiting, particularly your comment, my experience might have changed how I see white people. The writer asked, all white people? That's a pretty broad generalization about an entire race, most of whom you've never met, which is pretty much the definition of racism. Um, So, And then he went on to explain why, as a resident of Chicago, he felt it was, quote, wise not to engage young Black men because they're the group most likely to shoot you based on statistics. So how did you react to all of that? Well, as I,
1: as I write in the book, I I was absolutely shocked um, to get that email. I, 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 I didn't, I, I didn't know how to respond. I, I, it was the first time that I'd received something in such strong terms. And my first impulse was I thought someone was trolling me because I didn't really, I didn't know where they had seen me and, As it came out, they obviously admitted that they had seen me at this corporate event. Um, And I didn't, you know, my first impulse is to want to have engaged the person in conversation. But I also understood that this was a conversation that needed to be had face-to-face, and that might be very intimidating. But having a conversation online is not having a conversation. Like I'm like I'm not on social media. I think social media is not helping us. I got off Facebook. I got off um, Twitter. I got trolled on both of those um, platforms. I find when people post on there that oftentimes it's, it's not, it's not helpful. It's divisive. It's, and there's lots of false information on those platforms. And so I've refused to conduct, if if I'm all about having conversations, then that's not a conversation. Then I need to talk to someone face to face. I also knew that this person was probably not going to want to do that. So I did answer their email and tried to point out um, what the person was trying to say to me is that I, I guess that I thought all white people were racist, which is sort of the thing that Glenn Beck said about um, Barack Obama, that he had a deep-seated hatred towards white people. Well, he's half white, so why would he have a deep-seated hatred towards white people? He loved his mother. (laughs) Right, exactly. He talks about it beautifully in his book and, and his grandparents. who who helped raise him. So I I couldn't quite wrap my head around how she came to that conclusion and tried to, in a very gentle way, point out that my family is white. I love my family. Why would I say I I hate white people or that I find all white people racist? Um, And then this person wrote back in even stronger terms. And it was then that I realized, you know what, really isn't going to go anyplace mm-hmm. and I need to let this go and and that was okay I mean there are going to be certain people that you're just not going to be able to certainly in an email format um, communicate with in a productive way well
0: uh, should we try to uh, take calls again
1: sure
3: okay
0: okay let's see if we can make it work this time BAI you're on the air Mr. Lopez yes hi
3: yes how you doing
0: okay you want to join the conversation
3: yes um i want to test your guy's movie history okay in 1986 there was a movie called soul man with the great c thomas howell from e.t to extraterrestrial and james earl jones whereas um c thomas you know he he um i think he he puts on um a costume representing a black person and um, I remember one of the scenes in the movie. I was so, you know, I was so young back then. I'm only 42. One of the scenes in the movie gets pulled over by a policeman just for, you know, just for. i breaking hard because someone stopped short in front of him, and that just opened up my eyes. And one of the things that James Earl Jones says to *The Thomas Howell is, you fi- you finally got a chance to see how it is to, it to you know, to be black." And that's all I remember from that film. It was a great <laughs> film. <laughs> The 80s was so so great in film, man, you know? They just can't recapture that now with all the CGI stuff,
0: you know? All right. Thank you. Well, actually, that's an interesting point that he makes, which is that uh, people have been thinking about this for a while, although uh, I don't think anybody's uh, written a couple of books about it the way you have.
1: Yes, yes. I'm actually um, in the midst of uh, beginning some virtual classes for Carnegie Mellon University. I'm teaching um, some classes on race, identity, and stereotypes uh, for their theater department, their theater students there. And uh, we're going to approach the topic of blackface, which um, mm. was used in Soul, Soul Man. Um, and it how has affected it, a number of politicians recently. Affected politicians. I, I jokingly uh, have said we should have a black Facebook. <laughs> um, where we post all these photos of these white people in blackface and shame them. Um uh that movie I I don't even know if they'll still distribute that movie because there's been a lots of uh a push by so for instance, um oh, what's the the T V series with um no, I'm I'm having a senior moment, Leonard. Um there's a they they've 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 taken out of circulation many different TV series and movies in which people have worn blackface and they've Mm -hmm. just taken them out of circulation. And this has been a big push um, from the media companies. And the question becomes, is should we be taking them out of circulation or should we be looking at them and trying to diagnose and have conversation about why? Why is Mm -hmm. this happening? Why did they do this? What was their point? How do we have a conversation about this? And I think there is some value in that. There was a recent uh, article in The New York Times um, by a a media critic talking about that very thing.
0: Okay, well, let's try uh, another call. BAI, you're on the air.
2: Hi, guys. Great topic. Um, Thank you. Hi. I brought up blackface. I was thinking, uh, do you consider yourself a white, uh, black man trapped trapped in a white man's body? And do people, uh, when you act, uh, you know, as a black person, do they throw the... Yeah, like white, you like were they saying that you're kind of acting white-faced, you know, what I mean? like a black face, whatever you call it. You know, what I'm saying because you're a white person acting like a black person, you were just bringing that up. I thought you were saying. Do uh, you act like a black
0: person, be, and does it? What is that? What would that uh, but, mean, but, but the other Michael? Thing I want
2: to get to before you go out with that. Is is as a white person myself working in black neighborhoods, I see a prejudice. As you being a, a you know from one from both both races supposedly whatever you want to call it do you yeah. notice walking into a black neighborhood that you are also discriminated against as a white man, just like a normal... Of course, like I said, I worked in Harlem. You see the, the stereotypical animosities towards each other. You see that you're being prejudged before you... You know what I mean? Because you're yeah. a white... You know, you at least assume that. So everybody's going through this world jaded by what they hear on the radio and how everybody's so racist and everything. In real life, for the most part, everybody's pretty nice to each other, but we hear an awful lot about racism, but... We, for the most part, we get along pretty well for 360 million people. You know what I mean? You know, you know, Side <laughs> check, but, but uh, go ahead and uh, like I said, it's a great story. But I want to see if you noticed that everybody's prejudiced. Yeah. The black are just as prejudiced as the white. It's just there's just not as many of them. Well, some
0: people are more prejudiced than others. Some people are more suspicious than others. But that's a whole other matter. Uh, you want to respond, Michael?
1: Yes, yes. Thank you for your for your call and for your questions. I I would absolutely say that prejudice exists um, across the board. Um, But prejudice is different from racism. Racism is an ingrained idea that someone is less than that. A group of people are less than another. And so and prejudice is having an opinion about someone that is negative. And so those are two different kinds of things. I think anywhere you would go that you are different, whether it was a black neighborhood or an Indian neighborhood or to another country of people who don't look or sound like you, you would definitely experience some kind of prejudice. Um, Racism is on a whole different level. And so that's different in regards to my acting black. (laughs) (laughs) I I would suggest that I definitely take on um, black characters, but the characters are family members, and so therefore I'm very careful in the way that I go about um, portraying them, making sure that they're authentic, and that I'm, I'm not um, purposely or intentionally trying to stereotype them, although people may perceive that as such, that is certainly not the intention.
0: Now, my executive producer, Jesse Lent, has written me to, to inform me that Some of the uh, shows that have been uh, had had content removed from streaming services because of blackface are Thirty Rock, Scrubs, Faulty Towers.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Something of a sunny morning in Philadelphia, or something like Mm -hmm. that. But uh, the one I was trying to think of was Thirty Rock. Thirty Rock just pulled three episodes from their catalog. Yeah,
3: Um,
1: an an episode in which actually. one character was in whiteface and another was in blackface, again, trying to use satire and humor as a way to confront an issue about race. And, and, and that's where I think the film critic from the Times was sort of suggesting, shouldn't we be having this conversation about whether the appropriateness or inappropriateness of the use of this?
0: Yeah. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. But yeah. uh, I, I wonder, are you still performing the play?
1: Well, I'm performing it virtually. <laughs> uh. We're we're in a virtual world. And uh, when the pandemic hit and I realized that I couldn't travel around the country and perform live, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be out of business. What can I mm. do? And I, I had a copy, a video copy of a live presentation in front of a, a group of corporate leaders. And it was really great. It was the, the, the show went great. Uh, the response from the audience was really hot and vibrant. And so we're using that. Uh, and I'm still doing uh, sessions, but I'm doing them virtually. So we'll show the, the, the play to a group of people, whether it's a, a school or a corporation, and then I will come in and do a live facilitated guided uh, dialogue following the play.
0: And and do you ever take any other roles other than uh, this one that you've written for yourself?
1: (laughs) You know, I haven't. I've kind of moved out of the theater um, world um, probably in the last seven or eight years and been exclusively in the diversity and inclusion space. Um, Part of that has been, I guess, by design, because I've just really focused on this. And part of that has been, you know, I, I definitely miss the theater, but I love what I do, Leonard. I love to be able to use the arts as a means to provoke meaningful conversations and to affect social change.
0: And my great thanks to you for being on our show, Michael Sidney Fosberg. His book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. It's published by Incognito Books. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure to speak
1: with you too, Leonard. Thanks for having me on.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to send a comment about any of our shows or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position these days because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give2wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and the station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Their listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever they, they choose, or even more, to keep this station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. It's tax deductible, or at least tax deductible to the full extent that the law allows. Uh, and as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing. Nobody wants to talk about it race identity and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations by my guest, Michael Sidney Fosberg. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. Uh, Remember that WBAI is a listener sponsored station, we don't take money from any corporations, we don't run ads, as uh, many other public radio and television stations do. We are totally dependent on our listeners. And that it gives us certain freedom. That's why we call ourselves free speech radio. But um, a big thanks to everyone who has already stepped up to support the show and the station. And one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. To and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Academy Award winning actor and director Tim Robbins will discuss his latest project, Bobo Supreme. We'll see you then.